Welcome to the Michigan Constitution Podcast, where the citizens of the Mitten State seek the pleasant peninsula between their state and federal identities through a deeper understanding of how Michigan's Constitution and its defining case law affects their everyday lives. Your host, Tony Snyder, is a licensed Michigan attorney with more than a decade of experience in private and government practice. Through this podcast, you'll better understand the unique characteristics of Michigan's supreme law and probably learn a few fun facts about federalism, too. And now, here's Tony. Welcome back to the third installment of the Michigan Constitution podcast. This time, I want to talk about Article 1, Section 1 of the Michigan Constitution. The purpose of this podcast is merely to teach you what's in the Michigan Constitution. Each podcast will review a different article section, we'll talk about what it means, and we'll review Michigan case law, which helps us to better understand the effects of those constitutional provisions. Here is what this podcast is not. It is not legal advice. It is not legal expertise. Although I am a licensed attorney in the state of Michigan, I make no warranties as to the veracity of the statements I make within this podcast. First of all, I don't practice constitutional law. I practice administrative law. Second, the laws change on a day-to-day basis, as does case law. What might be applicable the day I make a statement about the Michigan Constitution could very well be outdated the day I post this podcast. If you think you're going to become a Michigan Constitutional Scholar because of my podcast, you're sadly mistaken. You'd do better with a Ouija board and a Magic 8-Ball. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. If you need Michigan legal advice you would be well served to contact the State Bar of Michigan and ask for the Lawyer Referral Service Program for a referral to an attorney who specializes in your legal matter. Article 1. Section 1. Political Power. All political power is inherent in the people. Government is instituted for their equal benefit, security, and protection. Here are a few points of interest about this section. Taking a look at the first two sentences of the second paragraph from the Declaration of Independence, it reads, quote, We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to effect the safety and happiness. Sounds like the Michigan drafters of Article 1, Section 1 of the Michigan Constitution were looking to the Declaration of Independence when they crafted this language, Again, ours reads, quote, All political power is inherent in the people. Government is instituted for their equal benefit, security, and protection, unquote. As a matter of fact, the section's language is not new to our current 1963 Michigan Constitution, but instead is a word-for-word reiteration from the 1908 Michigan Constitution. Actually, an earlier version of it, was referred to in the 1835 Michigan Constitution, but it was broken up into different sections and didn't include the word equal as it related to the protection, security, and benefit of the people. 
Obviously, this updated 1908 language was in response to the 14th Amendment having been added to the United States Constitution in 1868 after the conclusion of the Civil War. This is all relevant because the Michigan Supreme Court has held the equality of rights protected by our Michigan Constitution is the same as that preserved by the 14th Amendment of the Federal Constitution. In September 1908, just two months before the new 1908 Michigan Constitution would be adopted by the citizens of Michigan, our state Supreme Court took up the case of In Re Fox's Estate. Sidebar, In Re is Latin for, quote, in the matter of, unquote, and is used in a judicial proceeding where you don't traditionally have adversarial parties like you do in a case which might be titled Smith versus Jones. With an in-ray case, you typically are dealing with something like confiscated cash and property or perhaps a decedent's estate. In the case of in-ray Fox's estate, the beneficiaries of Mr. Croft and Fox inherited considerable sums of valuables but were taxed at different inheritance tax rates. It was argued that to be charged different tax rates based on how much they received and whether they were direct lineage of the decedent, Mr. Fox, was a violation of Michigan's protection guaranteed under both the 1835 Michigan Constitution as well as the 14th Amendment of the United States Constitution. The theory was that to pay a different inheritance tax because you were or were not an immediate family member of the person giving the inheritance, that taxation formulation did not treat you as an equal compared to the person who was a father, son, mother, daughter, or grandparent of the gift giver. The Michigan Supreme Court said that that was okay, but more important to who the devisee was, that being the person who received the gift, or how they were taxed was the fact that our Michigan Constitution was designed to be read as conferring the same rights as the 14th Amendment of the United States Constitution. The court said, in part, quote, But every constitution in the Union is founded upon the principle that all men are equal before the law, and that life, liberty, and property are secured to all alike. Such principle, however, is no broader in its scope and effect that the provision of the 14th Amendment of the United States Constitution and no law which can be sustained under such provisions of the federal constitution can be held in those respects to violate either the letter or the spirit of our state constitution, unquote. Okay, so let's dissect what the court's saying. The court acknowledged every state in the U.S. has a provision guaranteeing all men are equal under the law. But it goes on to note that this concept of equality under the law is its most understood because of the 14th Amendment of the United States Constitution. More so, any Michigan law that violates the 14th Amendment subsequently violates the Michigan Constitution. <laughs> if only the 1908 Michigan Supreme Court wrote as clearly as they do today, right? That clarity did come from a 1931 Michigan Supreme Court case of Nauseous versus Lar. In this case, a car accident occurred where the injured party, a 16-year-old girl named Ms. Nauseous, was riding in an automobile driven by the defendant, Mr. Lar. Specifics regarding why Ms. Nauseous was riding in a car with Mr. Lar or what their relationship was to one another was never explained. 
Regardless, the subject matter of this lawsuit was predicated upon her being a quote-unquote gratuitous passenger as opposed to an individual who hired someone, like a taxi cab, to take her to her destination. At the time, Michigan delineated when a passenger in an automobile accident could sue. That differentiation was whether the passenger paid for the ride in which she was subsequently injured in, or if she was simply a friend or colleague accompanying the driver. Ms. Nodzius obviously wanted to sue, but was barred from doing so and alleged she was being treated differently because she received a free ride versus paying for one. The important piece to this court case was that Relying upon the Fox's estate case, the Michigan Supreme Court reiterated in a much more succinct statement, quote, The equality of rights protected by our Constitution is the same as that preserved by the 14th Amendment of the Federal Constitution, unquote. If there was any doubt that the 1908 Constitution was clearly intended to incorporate the 14th Amendment protections into it, the final case we'll discuss in this trifecta of case law is the Cook Coffee Company versus the Village of Flushing. In 1933, the Village Council adopted an ordinance which regulated or prohibited certain sales of goods, wares, merchandise, and the like without first obtaining the proper license. The problem with this ordinance, however, was that it treated those businesses that had been in business three months or longer different than businesses which had only been in business less than three months. If the business was less than three months old, it was required to pay a $10 per day license, which in 2019 money is the equivalent of $197 a day. After paying the daily license fee for some time, the Cook Coffee Company, a new-to-the-area business, complained that it was being treated differently and that that was a violation of both the Michigan Constitution and the 14th Amendment of the United States Constitution. The Michigan State Supreme Court expressly relied upon Nodzius, which, as you'll remember, relied upon Fox's estate. The court again said that the 14th Amendment of the United States Constitution and Article 2, Section 1 of the Michigan Constitution of 1908 gave the same right of equal protection of the laws. The court went on to state that while it understood the intent of the ordinance was to protect residents of flushing from quote-unquote fly-by-night peddlers and to prevent fraud on the public, the duration of a business's existence does not ensure it is any more or less credible because of its age. The court concluded by saying, quote, This is the very classification which has been condemned. It is an unreasonable discrimination, and the ordinance is therefore void as in violation of the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution and Article 2, Section 1 of the Michigan Constitution, unquote. But another way in which our Article 1, Section 1 has been used in relation to the constitutional delegation is of legislative authority. But remember, Article 2, Section 1 of the Michigan Constitution of 1908 got combined into one section and was put right up front upon the creation of our current 1963 Constitution. So what's going on? In Dearborn Firefighters Union versus the city of Dearborn, the city was alleging that an arbitration proceeding violated, among other things, Article 1, Section 1. It wasn't the arbitration per se with which the city took umbrage. It was the method and person upon whom would preside. 
Under the act, a three-member panel was convened whereupon the city chose a delegate to represent them, the union would choose a delegate to represent them, and then the chairman of the Michigan Employment Relations Commission would appoint someone to serve as the arbiter and chair of said arbitration panel. Sidebar. Arbitration is different than mediation. With mediation, traditionally, two opposing sides will come to the table and a mediator will do their part to bring the warring sides to an amicable resolution. But if the two sides cannot come to a resolution, both parties walk away and a lawsuit will go forward, thus allowing a judge or jury to determine the fate of the opponents. On the other hand, with arbitration, much like with mediation, the two opposing parties will come to the table and the arbiter will attempt to bring the two sides together for a mutually agreed upon resolution. However, if the two parties are unable to come to an amicable resolution, the arbiter gets to decide the final outcome. And while the arbiter can, you know, split the baby in half, so to speak, for the two parties, the arbiter is under no obligation to do so. The arbiter could rule entirely in favor of the city, or the arbiter could side entirely in the favor of the union. The arbiter is given a great deal of authority. This was the inherent problem with the act in the eyes of the Michigan Supreme Court. See, the outcomes that the arbiter was deciding were things like police and firefighter salaries and pay raises, their level of health benefits, vacation time, number of officers on duty during an eight-hour shift. You get the idea. These outcomes had long-term implications on the city's bottom line. If the city couldn't afford the arbiter's decision that salary increases had to occur or the number of police officers that would be on call at any given time, well, the city would be forced to either reduce the number of officers it employed, thus reducing city safety, or they would be forced to incur debts that the citizens of the city would have to pay through their taxes. In a very real sense, the arbiter of the panel was entrusted with the authority to decide major questions of public policies concerning the conditions of public employment, the levels and standards of public services, and the allocation of public revenues. The court believed that these decisions are legislative and political in nature and should be made by political officials. That way, Citizens have a right to hold their public officials responsible for the decisions made. The act was structured to insulate the arbiter's decision from review in the political process. The person was not intended to be accountable within the political process of his or her decision. That, the court found, was not consistent with the constitutional exercise of political power in a representative democracy. The court thought, quote, the political power which the people possess and confer on their elected representatives is to be exercised by persons responsible and accountable to the people through the normal processes of the representative democracy, unquote. The argument in favor of this arbitration format was that granting an award in an otherwise emotionally charged situation would prevent criticism from constituents or remove the threat to the re-election of a mayor or a union president. Further, it was argued that this approach to legislative decision-making is designed to insulate and, in fact, does insulate the decision-making process and the results from any retribution within the political process. But again, the court determined that it would be an enormous departure from present concepts of responsible exercise of governmental power 
if a practice were to develop of resolving difficult political issues in an arbitrator's conference room as an alternative to facing up to vexing problems in the halls of state and local legislatures. Giving power to resolve political issues to an arbitrator and characterizing the issue as a quote-unquote dispute or difference does not obviate the need for political accountability of the manner in which political issues are resolved. The primary obligation of government is to govern. Decision-making by an independent outside operative effectively excludes government as the final authority. Well, that's going to do it for episode three of the Michigan Constitution podcast. Please reach out to me at podcast at TonySnyder.com or I'm on Twitter. I'm at Tony Snyder. The Michigan Constitution podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not offer legal advice or create an attorney-client relationship. This podcast is hosted by Tony Snyder. For more information, visit TonySnyder.com, send an email to podcast at TonySnyder.com, or follow Tony on Twitter at Tony Snyder. Catch new episodes on the 1st and 15th of each month. Thanks for listening.